What is going on, sports fans, and welcome into Season 4, Episode 22 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast, and we've got an exciting episode for you this week. NFL Week 7 recap. We also recap last night's Thursday Night Football game between the Ravens and the Buccaneers in the fastest five minutes in football. We also preview Week 8, give you my game picks, including the Browns, Bengals, Monday Night Football Halloween matchup. We also talk some things MLB. The World Series starts tonight. I'll give you a full preview and my prediction who is going to raise the Commissioner's Trophy in Major League Baseball. We also talk about college football, give you my updated playoff picture right now, and also preview the weekend of games. And we also talk some early season NBA takeaways. So we've got a lot to get to on this week's show. But first, as always, this episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast, creation tools, editing tools, everything you need to make your very own podcast right from your phone or computer. So if you want to make your very own podcast, here's what you need to do. You need to go online to anchor.fm. It's that easy. Just type in anchor.fm on your phone, Google, your laptop, your computer, whatever. Just type in anchor.fm or you can download the free Anchor app from the App Store Microsoft Store or Google Play Store today. Today is Friday, October 28th. Let's go. Welcome back to Season 4, Episode 22 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. It's time to recap Week 7. We start in Foxborough, where the Patriots took on the Bears in what everybody thought was going to be a one-sided Patriots win. Either way, Bill Belichick was going to make history against the Bears. It just wasn't the history he wanted. Belichick missed out on passing George Hallis for second on all-time coaching victories list at the expense of Hallis' old team, but it was Chicago's first ever win in Foxborough and the highest scoring game of Justin Fields' career. The Bears ran the ball down the Patriots' throats, and there's a sudden quarterback situation for the Patriots as Bill Belichick pulled Mac Jones in favor of the rookie Zappi, who led two touchdown drives early but threw two interceptions in the second half as the Bears win 33-14. We go to Miami where the Dolphins took on Kenny Pick. It and the Steelers. As part of the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the NFL's only perfect scene, season, Miami marked down the concessions to 1972 prices. 
and apparently discounted the football than the 1972 version too. The Dolphins' defense bailed out a rusty Tua-led offense and spoiled the return of former Finns coach Brian Flores and former Finns safety Minka Fitzpatrick to stay in the AFC East race. Meanwhile, in Pittsburgh, the Steelers keep on falling. Kenny Pickett threw three interceptions, and it doesn't look like it'll get any brighter for Pittsburgh until they get T.J. Watt back. It's the Dolphins' win, 16-10. We go to San Francisco where Christian McCaffrey was Kyle Shanahan's shiny new toy. If Kyle Shanahan didn't like re-watching Super Bowl 54 against the Chiefs, he's really going to hate this one. San Francisco demonstrated a reckless level of desperation by trading for Christian McCaffrey, which is a luxury the Niners can't afford at the price they paid. We're about to find out how much job security Shanahan and John Lynch really have. Meanwhile, in Kansas City, the reports of the Chiefs Deaths were greatly exaggerated. They are not going anywhere. Patrick Mahomes was able to get Mecole Hardman three touchdowns, and he was able to spray the ball all across the field. This Chiefs team has more weapons than you think, and I wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't be surprised to see if they end up atop the AFC once again, as the Chiefs win 44-23. to We go to Englewood, California, where the Seahawks took on the Chargers. And here's a fine example of four and three stars not being equal. Seattle is one of the most pleasant surprises in the NFL and are looking like a sneaky contender in a division widely expected to be decided by the two teams in California. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Chargers still look like the talented underachievers they've been for years, even with the AFC West not shaping up to be as historically great as previously thought. Justin Herbert can't beat bad teams, and many people are questioning if he's a top 10 quarterback. Geno Smith, on the other hand, might just be a top 15 guy this year, as the Seahawks win 37-23. We go to Las Vegas, where the Raiders took on the Texans. Josh Jacobs is the first Raider with three straight 100-yard rushing games since Napoleon Kaufman in 1997. If Las Vegas doesn't want to throw down a few chips to keep him, he's going to be a nice pickup elsewhere. Put my money on Buffalo as the Raiders win 38-20. We go to Denver where Russell Wilson was not playing against the Jets, but later this week on a jet to London, he would be doing some high knees. No matter who plays quarterback, Denver's offense is historically putrid. At this point, the only question about the Broncos' offense is whether Russell Wilson will finish this season with the most ridiculous stat of 2022 still intact. That stat is, Russell Wilson has seven more bathrooms in his house than he has touchdown passes through six games as the J-E-T-S win 16-9. We go to FedEx Field in Landover, Maryland where the Commanders took on Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. Taylor Heineke honored his late father by beating the team of his youth to get hella paid. The defense had the rare distinction of holding Green Bay to no third down conversions, and Washington won in front of a bunch of alumni as part of the 90th anniversary celebration. Even in victory, this franchise will continue to rob Washington of any joy, as long as Dan Snyder is at the top of its hierarchy. The Commanders get a win over an Aaron Rodgers who doesn't look the same, 23-20. We go to Baltimore where the Ravens took on the Browns. Now this is what Washington used to be. 
Baltimore celebrated the 10th anniversary of its last Super Bowl and then went out and kept current championship aspirations alive by beating an ASC North rival to stay atop a competitive division. Things get really interesting, and they did get really interesting as we'll get to this game later, as the Ravens shrug off a short week and they kept Tampa in a downward spiral on Thursday night football. Meanwhile in Cleveland, the Browns have lost four straight since beating the Steelers on Thursday night football and many fans are just closing their eyes until December 4th when a certain quarterback is back off a of suspension as the Ravens win 23-20. We go to Dallas where Dak came back against the Lions. If Detroit's response to rock bottom is having nearly as many turnovers as points against the team breaking in a rusty quarterback, Dan Campbell is as good as gone as the Cowboys win 24-6. We go to Jacksonville where the Giants took on the Jaguars in one heck of a game. Not that beating a Jacksonville squad that's lost 19 straight cross-division games is a big deal, but Big Blue finding a way to win on the road in comeback fashion to improve to 6-1 shows this team just might be for real after all as the G-Men win 23-17. We go to Carolina where the Panthers took on the Bucks. Football gods, we live in a world where this is true. Incredible. Tom Brady going after this week 7 loss against Carolina. His win-loss was the worst since 2002. His team's points per game is the worst ever. His pass yards per attempt is the worst since 2013, and his pass touchdowns through is the worst is 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 the worst since 2013 as well. Meanwhile, the Panthers bench Baker Mayfield, and all their problems seem to be fixed. As PJ Walker and Taylor Heineke remembers the XFL a few years ago, today they both started in the NFL and won games over Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. How about that? As the Panthers beat the Bucks 21 to three. We go to Tennessee where the Titans took on the Colts. Tennessee, Tennessee swept Indy for the second straight year to regain, regain control of the, of the division. They were expected to never win. The Colts better throw together an alumni weekend next week if they want to counter Washington's Heineke magic. This game led to the end of Matt Ryan and the start of Sam Ellinger in Indianapolis. As the Titans win, 19-10. We go to Cincinnati where the Bengals came out firing. And just in case some of y'all really thought Atlanta was good, here you go, as the Bengals win 35-17. We finish week seven in Arizona, where we could play an 18-game season and not get a better shot than the pick six on Andy Dalton. Go search it up on Twitter, folks. That gift should be in the Louvre, as the Cardinals beat the Saints 42-34. And we finish in Tampa Bay, where Tom Brady looked to shrug off a divorce that got finalized on Friday morning last night and beat Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. The narrative leading up to Thursday night's week eight NFL game in Tampa was all about the Buccaneers struggles. And that storyline won't be going away anytime soon after a 27 to 22 home loss to the Ravens. And after a key injury to the Bengals, it looks like the Ravens will run away with the AFC North as the Ravens win 27 to 22. Week seven is in the books, and so is part of Week 8. As we mentioned, the Thursday night football game in Week 8 is wrapped up as well. And that was the fastest five minutes in football presented by Anchor. Um, it was a really interesting week, I would say, in Week 7. A lot of kind of blowout games. Not a lot of great games, but the standings are kind of shaping up not how a lot of us expected to. So let's 
it's almost halfway through the season, so I thought we'd break out our friends 538 to kind of examine the state the state of the league. You know I love 538, their NFL predictions. So we'll get to see who they think is going to make the playoffs. Remember, this is through Week 7 and through one game in Week 8. So as of right now, um, the Bills are the overwhelming favorite to win the Super Bowl, according to 538. 99% chance to make the playoffs, 86% chance to win the division, 67% chance to win a first-round bye, and a 28% chance to win the Super Bowl. The Eagles are heavily favored to win their division, as well as the Chiefs and the Vikings and the Ravens and the Titans. They all have a 60% or greater chance to win the division. The Cowboys have a 95% chance to make the playoffs, but only a 22% chance to win the division because of the Eagles. Some other teams that they liked to get into the playoffs are the Bengals at 73%, the Giants at 86%, a couple teams that we thought were locks at the beginning of the year that are right on the cusp, the 49ers and the Rams, Rams at 46%, 49ers at 52%, the Bucks, who are 3-5, and five, the worst start. In Tom Brady's career, the first time in Tom Brady's career, his team is under 500, two games under 500, excuse me. They only have a 49% chance to make the playoffs. The Dolphins have a 63% chance, and the Jets have a 56% chance. The Chargers, a little bit of a surprise, only have a 45%. So that's kind of the state of the league. Um, the biggest surprises, I think, midway through this year, I talked about it last week when I interviewed Chauncey. One of my biggest surprises, besides the good surprises in terms of teams playing well and better than they were expected to, like the Giants and the Jets, two of my surprises for teams that are underperforming, the Buccaneers and the Packers. And let's just talk about the Buccaneers. So I watched most of that Thursday night game last night against the Ravens. Um, and I don't know what it is with this Buccaneers team. Do I think Father Time may have caught up to Tom Brady? I don't want to go that far yet, but I think it's a distinct possibility. I really, really do. I also think that Todd Bowles is not a very good head coach in the NFL. Uh, obviously, Bruce Arians stepped down after last year with the Buccaneers. I think if Bruce Arians was coaching the Buccaneers right now, they might be in a little bit of a better position. With that being said, it's just insane what this Buccaneers offense looks like right now. They don't run the ball. They don't even try to establish a run in the game. They just pass, pass, pass with a 45-year-old quarterback. Yes, I get Tom Brady's the greatest of all time. I get that. But you will not win a game in this day and age in the NFL if you can't at least try to establish a run. You become too predictable. Good defenses like the Ravens feast on that. And right now the Buccaneers sit at 3-5, and five, and 538 has them pre predicted and projected to finish at 8-9, and nine, but still win the NFC South, which they expect to be a really bad division. Let's talk about the Browns. So the Browns, after losing to the Patriots in blowout fashion in Week 6, go on the road to Baltimore in Week 7, a game I didn't expect them to win. Not a lot of people expected them to win. And... You know, they played, I would say they played well enough to win that game. They lose 23-20, to controversial calls at the end kind of, you know, put the Browns in a disadvantage, but good teams overcome that. And the Browns right now I don't think are a very good football team. So just looking at the numbers, Jacoby Brissett played 
fantastic against the Ravens on Sunday. 22-27 for 258 yards, zero touchdowns, zero interceptions, did have that lost fumble, but 22-27, very, very efficient, did not make too many mistakes. You know, you had Nick Chubb, 16 carries, 91 yards, and a touchdown, 5.7 yards a carry. You had Amari Cooper with three catches, 74 yards. David Njoku, who may may or may not be missing a couple weeks due to an injury, getting involved with seven catches, 71 yards. Peoples-Jones had six catches for 71 yards as well. And you had Jeremiah Wusokoromoa forcing a fumble. Miles Garrett with a sack. I mean, the Browns played well enough to win this game. There were a couple glaring areas in which the Ravens took advantage of. One of those was the run game. Gus Edwards had two touchdowns on the ground. And Lamar only completed nine passes, and the Ravens won this game. And it was, funnily enough, they won 23-20. Same final score of that Browns-Falcons game, in which the Browns lost 23-20 to the Falcons, in which Marcus Mariota only completed eight passes. So it's the second game this year the Browns have lost when the team has been totally one-dimensional running the football. So the run defense, although I think it was a little bit improved, it made some plays, gave the team a chance to win at the end. Still think there needs to be a lot of improvement there. The other thing, special teams. They got they got beat on special teams. And I know you might not think of special teams as really an area like obviously offense and defense are the two most important areas in football but whenever I talk to coaches whenever I listen to coaches press conferences whenever I'm at a football coaches press conference they say got to be efficient in all three phases of the game and the third phase which someone argue might be one one of the more important phases because it normally sets up field position which is a big part of football is special teams and the Browns got beat in special teams. Yes, the Ravens have probably one of the best kickers of all time in Justin Tucker, but their punter was averaging 60 yards a punt. Uh, Devin Duvernay had one return for 46 yards, which set up a Ravens score, and the Browns just couldn't get anything going on punt returns or kick returns, and it, it was it was just a, it was just a very strange strange game for the Browns. But despite that, you look at the numbers. They outgained the Ravens 336 to 254. Outgained them on the ground, outgained them in the air 223 to 94. And they had as many first downs. They had a little bit less time of possession. Um, but it it was it, I still think the Browns defense and the Browns as a whole played well enough to win this game. So let's take you through that sequence at the end of the game that kind of cost the Browns the game. So about three minutes left, Jeremiah Wusokoromoa, the Browns' second-year linebacker from Notre Dame, punches the ball out from Justice Hill. It's a fumble. The Browns recover it. They have the ball with three minutes and I believe one or two timeouts and the two-minute warning, and they have a chance to either go down and kick a field goal to tie it or go down and score a touchdown and win it. So the Browns are going down the field. There's about, I would say, about two and a half minutes left. It's third and two. In Baltimore territory, I would say about the 42, somewhere between the 37 and the 42-yard line of Baltimore. Third and two, Brissett drops back, dials up a deep ball to Amari Cooper. It is caught for a Browns touchdown. The Browns take the lead against the Ravens on the road with two minutes left. Except there's a flag. And the officials called offensive pass interference on Amari Cooper. 
Marcus Peters was defending him. It was a ticky-tacky call. And I'm not saying it was a ticky-tacky call because it wasn't offensive pass interference. By the textbook definition, um, it was offensive pass interference. It was. But there were plays like that similarly in this game. I believe Duvernay or Bateman, one of the two, caught a deep pass from Lamar, and they were going against Martin Emerson, and they pushed off. And it was the same, same play. And they didn't throw the flag on the on Duvernay or Bateman, but they threw it on Amari Cooper in a touchdown that would have given the Browns the lead. I'm not saying it wasn't offensive pass interference. I'm saying is that is not a common call, especially on that type of play. With that being said, though, Amari Cooper did not need to extend his left arm. He would have been able to catch that anyway because he had separation on Peters. So that was the first call that kind of went against the Browns that kind of put him in a precarious situation at the end of that game. Then it was fourth and two, like I said, between the 37 and the 42-yard line. It was going to be a 55-yard field goal for Cade York, who was two for two on the day. Um, and there, it's just before the two-minute warning. So they're about to kick, and then there's a flag and some whistles. You got the Browns pointing to the Ravens that it's a, an offsides, an encroachment. You got the Ravens pointing to the Browns. It's a false start. The, uh, the refs conference for about three to five minutes. They talk about it, and they come to the conclusion that it was indeed a false start on the Browns. Except, when you rewatch the play, the Browns didn't move. Some Ravens fans will claim that Harrison Bryant's leg moved. Some Ravens fans will claim that uh, Charlie Hewitt moved the ball. But, the fact of the matter is that both of those things happened after Calais Campbell on the Ravens and a couple other guys jumped across the line of scrimmage and so the Browns get moved five yards back instead of potentially five yards up when I think Kevin Stefanski would maybe have that conversation, do we go for this fourth down? Instead, the Browns get moved five yards back, 61-yarder as opposed to a 55-yarder. Snap is up. The snap is good. Kick. The snap is down. Kick is up, and the kick is blocked. The Ravens block the field goal. And not only that, the ball hits the ground at 206. And the clock somehow trickles down to 157, so the Browns don't even get the two-minute warning, which would come into play later because the Browns would get the ball back with about 20 seconds left. Desperate amount of time to take some shots down the field. But if they had that two-minute warning is essentially a free timeout, who knows what changes. So it was a poorly officiated game, in my opinion. Uh, but nonetheless, no excuse for the Browns. You're 2-5. and five. You should not be 2-5 and five with as talented as the roster as you have right now. The Ravens, kudos to them, they hold on to a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter, which many didn't think were possible heading into this week. And they moved to 4-3 and three in the AFC North, 4-3 uh, and three in, in first place in the AFC North, now sit at 5-3 and three in first place in the AFC North after beating Tampa Bay last night on Thursday Night Football. This Browns team, they've got a lot to figure out. Do you make some trades at the deadline? Do you part ways with the Kareem Hunt? Do you part ways with the Greedy Williams? Do you part ways with the Jack Conklin? I don't think Andrew Barry is going to throw in the towel on this season and do that because I think in March when they traded for Deshaun Watson, Andrew Barry made one of the most one of the riskiest moves in NFL history just for the sake of winning. And I think Andrew Barry is all in. 
And I think this Browns organization is all into winning a Super Bowl. I think even though it's 2-5, and five, this division is performing under their normal level of play so far this year. Ravens are at first place in 5-3, and three, but who's to say 9 wins doesn't win you this division? You're going to have Deshaun Watson back for the final 6 games of the year. Maybe you just put all your cards on the table, try to win, what, 1 or 2 of these next 4 games, get to 3-8, and 4-7, and 5-6, and six, somewhere in that range, and put your cards on the table with Deshaun Watson back, hoping he can, hoping he can lead you anywhere from four and two to six and zero. Oh. The fact of the matter is, though, losing this year for the Browns doesn't do them any good because they don't have their first round pick. So I think they should be all in to try and win as many games as they can because losing doesn't do you much. With that, let's get to our week eight picks. We. Are- Already week eight, obviously already started last night. I did pick the Ravens over the Buccaneers, so we are one and zero in our picks this week. So we got the Jaguars in London against the Broncos. Uh, you know, you had Russell Wilson who's going to play. He's going to come back from that hamstring injury. He's going to play and suit up for the Broncos in this matchup against the Jaguars. You know, you had that story about the Jet to London. Russell Wilson doing high knees while his team is trying to sleep. The dude is a cornball. Um, I liked how the Jags played last week. I really did, even though they did lose to the Giants. I think there's something there with that Jags team. I think Trevor Lawrence needs to be better. Um, You know, but the Jags did win last year in London. Even Urban Meyer won in London. I do like that the Jaguars traded James Robinson to the Jets and made Travis Etienne their full-time running back one. He is a shifty, electric, athletic running back that I think provides a spark to this offense that James Robinson didn't. So I'm going to take the Jags to win this game by a field goal, probably around 19-16, to 18-15. So I'll pick the Jaguars over the Broncos. Then we got the Falcons and the Panthers in Atlanta. And who... Who would have guessed at the beginning of the year that this week eight game between the Falcons and the Panthers would be for sole possession of first place in the NFC South? The Panthers have a realistic chance to be in first place if they win. Like I said, they will be in first place if they win. If P.J. Walker plays as well as he did last week, I think they can, can, can compete in all of their division games the rest of the way. I'm going to give the Falcons a slight edge in this matchup because of their running game. I feel stronger about Atlanta keeping this game close than I do about the Panthers winning. So I'm going to take the Falcons to win this game by 4, 26-22, maybe 23-19, something weird like that. And I think the Falcons win this game over the Panthers. Cowboys at Bears in Arlington. I'm going to take the Cowboys to beat the Bears at home. But I think it's going to be a little bit closer than people expected. I think the Bears have a lot more grit or a little bit more frisky than some of the some of those people out there think. So I'm going to take the Cowboys in a close one. Dolphins, Lions, another close game I'm anticipating at Ford Field in Detroit. Um, Detroit, I think they have a solid young core. But I just don't know which Lions skill position players are going to suit up in this game. Uh, The Dolphins are a blitz-heavy defense. I think they're going to force Jared Goff into some mistakes. So I'll pick the Dolphins to win in a close one over the Lions. Vikings at Cardinals in Minneapolis. Give me the Vikings at home coming off a bye. 
They are first in average starting field position and second in opponent's average starting field position, which makes them the 85 Bears of field position teams. DeAndre Hopkins helps the Cardinals, but I think it, it's too early to trust them in this game. I think this team, this matchup's always fun when the Vikings play the Cardinals over the last couple years. It's just two unpredictable, streaky teams. I'll take the Vikings at home, though, over the Cardinals. Raiders, Saints, give me the Raiders. I've really liked the Raiders teams I've seen the last couple of weeks, especially last week against the Texans. The, the, the Saints could be without Michael Thomas, Marshawn Lattimore, and Jarvis Landry again. So I'm going to take the, the Raiders to beat the Saints in New Orleans. Patriots, Jets. Patriots are favored by two and a half in this game. And I really, oh, this is a tough game. This is going to be a very close game. Um, Mac Jones will start this week for the Patriots. I mentioned in the open. A little bit of quarterback controversy there potentially, as some people think Bailey Zappi should start. Some people think Mac Jones should start. But I think Mac Jones gives the Patriots the highest ceiling. And I think the vote of confidence they gave him should help them. I expect there to be a lot of defense in this game. And I expect the Jets to fall down to earth. And I do think the Patriots cover that two and a half and win this game by three against the Jets in MetLife. Eagles, Steelers, my lock of the week. Give me the Eagles to win this game against the Steelers. They're 11-point favorites. I think the Steelers cover that 11-point spread. But I think the Eagles are just too good at home. We Chauncey gave us the stat in the NFL season preview. The Steelers haven't won on the road in Philly in over 50 years. Don't think it starts Sunday. It's my lock of the week. Najee Harris showed signs of life last week, which is good news for some fantasy owners out there. But I think he needs to be even better this week if they want any chance to get to that Eagles defense. TJ Watt could be back. I'm not expecting this to be a lopsided win for the Eagles. I'm expecting it to be maybe a seven-point win for the Eagles. So I'll take the Eagles over the Steelers by seven because I think despite how bad I think the Steelers are this year, they still will find a way to keep it a one-possession game. So I'll take the Eagles to win over the Steelers. Titans, Texans, in Houston. Um, I don't trust Ryan Tannehill at all this year. He's got an ankle injury that kept him out of practice on Wednesday. But the Texans, I think, can... I mean, the Titans, I think, can win this game if they just hold the ball... Um, hand the ball to Derrick Henry, hold it on, hold on to it, and ice out a win and build that early lead and just give the ball to Derrick Henry. I think that's a recipe to win in the AFC South. So I'll take the Titans over the Texans, 23-17-ish. So I'll take the Titans in that game. Commanders at Colts should have been the Carson Wentz revenge game, but it's not because uh, he is out. It's going to be Taylor Heineke versus Sam Ellinger. So that's good. Uh, it's a fun matchup in Indy. I think the Commanders are going to win, though, against the Colts in Indy, 19-16 or 17-14, to 14, something like that. I think the Commanders have a little bit better team than the Colts. The Colts have a lot of offensive problems, so I'm going to take the Commanders in this one. 49ers, Rams, NFC Championship rematch in Inglewood. Rams coming off a bye. <sighs> I don't know. The Rams' offense is pretty undercooked right now, but I can't trust Jimmy G. 
49ers are favored, so I guess I'm going to take the 49ers in this game as the favorites. And I think Christian McCaffrey gets involved, and I trust their offense a little more than I trust the Rams' offense right now, so I'll take the 49ers. Seahawks at Giants, my upset of the week is going to be the Seahawks over the Giants. Um, the Giants are allowing a league worst 5.7 yards per carry. Seattle scorching running back Kenneth Walker the third. Give me the Seahawks to do well on this Giants run defense and win this game in a one possession game. Bills at Packers. Give me the Bills by 10. I don't think the Packers are very good. And I think the Bills are very good. That's all there is to it. And we wrap up our week eight picks in Cleveland. Halloween night, the Battle of Ohio. Browns, Bengals, Bengals, three-point favorites. And I asked myself the question as we talk about this game, are the Bengals back or did they just face a Saints defense that majors in giving up big plays and a Falcons defense ranked dead last in pass defense efficiency down its top two corners? I don't think Cincinnati's going to have to find out this week because the Cleveland defense might be another dream matchup. I think the Bengals are going to stay aggressive, try to get Joe Burrow passing on early down. It's hard to imagine the Browns' secondary lasting four quarters without a bunch of big mistakes. And truth be told, there are only so many passing attacks that can take advantages of shoddy defenses in 2022. So we'll see how it goes. The Browns need to run the ball on Monday. They need to run, they need to run the ball because the Bengals aren't good against the run. They're giving up the fifth most yards per carry per game. So I think there should be a heavy dose of Nick Chubb on Monday night. Force the Bengals to stop that before you are forced to go to your passing game. Some injury news for the Bengals. Jamar Chase is out four to six weeks with a hip injury. So yes, I do think that favors the Browns a little bit. Gives them a better chance to win this game. For whatever reason, I just think Kevin Stefanski owns Zach Taylor. So my my other upside of the pick of the week, I'm going to pick the Browns because nobody expects them to win this game. I don't expect them to win this game. But I think if they do, if they stick to their game plan, if Kevin Stefanski crafts the right game plan, the Browns should win this game. And I think they will in a close one, maybe by a field goal on Halloween night in the Battle of Ohio. And I think the Browns are going to win their eighth win in their last nine tries against the Bengals. We are going to take a quick break when we come back. World Series preview, NBA early season takeaways, college football updated playoff rankings, and much, much more. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back after a word from Anchor. Welcome back to Season 4, Episode 22 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast, and it is October 28th. Happy early Halloween to everybody. I'm excited for the Halloween festivities this weekend where I'm at. I'm going to, you know, eat some candy, go to some parties, go to some costume parties. It's going to be very, very fun. I hope you guys all have a fun and safe Halloween, everybody who's listening to this. But, you know, late October makes me think of Halloween, makes me think of fall. Also makes me think of the fall classic, the World Series, which starts tonight. The Phillies, the improbable fighting Phils taking on the the heavyweight Houston Astros in this year's edition of the World Series. A lot of people, I think, preseason when they made their picks uh, for the World Series, the Astros were probably one of the teams that penciled in to win the American League. And um, 
The same cannot be said for the Phillies. So a lot of people expected the Astros to be here. Not a lot of people expected the Phillies to be here. The Phillies finished third in their division, and they had the worst record of any NL playoff team. You look at the discrepancy in win-loss record in this World Series. The Astros won 105 games. The Phillies won 87 games. So that is a massive difference between an 18-game difference between the National League champion and the American League champion. Uh, the Phillies, however, their magical playoff run, you know, beating the Cardinals and St. Louis in the wild card series. Then they go and face the big bad Atlanta Braves in the second round, and they beat the defending World Series champs in four. Then they face the Padres, go to San Diego, they win game one, the Padres win game two, and then the Phillies rattle off three in a row at home, and then Bryce Harper, just the swing, as Joe Davis said, the swing of his life, and I really would like to play that clip for you guys because it was just an insane moment. Full disclosure, I'm rooting for the Phillies to win this World Series, but I'm going to analyze it and what I think is actually going to happen. So, but before we get to that, just want to give you guys like the call of Bryce Harper's game-winning, series-winning home run for the Phillies. Here it is, as called by Joe Davis, who I think is a fantastic announcer on Fox Sports 1. And what a moment. Uh, they released some of the crowd shots of that home run. And just the crowd reactions were awesome. And just really big shout out to Bryce Harper, who is one of my favorite players in the league to watch. Just to, I think, you know, early in his career, I think a lot of people thought he was overrated. And then I feel like people call him overrated so much that he, in a sense, became underrated, if that makes sense. But... Just what a moment for Bryce Harper. You know, the guy was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was, you know, 16 years old. And, um, you know, they were they were comparing him to all these baseball greats. He was in the majors when he was 19. And he gets paid this big contract to the Phillies, and he's lived up to it. And I think he's worth every penny so far for the Phillies. With that being said, let's get into this preview of this World Series. So... The Astros and the Phillies. The Astros, I think, on paper, are the better team. I think they had the better pitching staff with the likes of Justin Verlander, Framber Valdez. Um, I think they have a really good lineup, obviously. They have the playoff experience that maybe the Phillies are lacking with the guys who've been there, who've won this before, like Jose Altuve, like Alex Bregman. They have a great Great, great hitter, Jordan Alvarez, to sure up the middle of that that lineup. I really like the Astros. I really like them. But I think the fit, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think the smart pick here is the Astros. I think the Astros, have, they have home field advantage. They have more 
pitching talent. They have a little bit better bullpen, in my opinion. And they have guys who've been here, who've won it. I think they have more heavy hitters in that lineup than the Phillies do. But the Phillies feel like one of those, you know, I don't want to say teams of destiny, but teams of destiny. They just do. Um, They're like an underdog, scrappy Philadelphia, you know, city of brotherly love, you know, the fighting city of Philadelphia. Um, I don't know. I feel like the three here, I'll give you three reasons why I think each team can win. First reason why the Astros can win is because of their bullpen. Their relievers led the majors in ERA during the regular season, and they've been flat-out dominant in the postseason. Um, Dusty Baker has as many as five lights-out, high-leverage arms to throw in late in games. The Phillies don't have that type of depth in their bullpen. Two, I think the Astros have a really, really good defense, and I think their defense is a little bit better than the Phillies' defense. Um, At one point, at some point, you'd think the Phillies' defense would have cost them in the big moment, but it hasn't yet. They made the routine plays, but the Astros had the second most outs above average in baseball this year, and they're a far superior defensive team. So I think they can take more hits away from the Phillies in this series. And then, like I said, that playoff experience, that moxie, their fourth World Series appearance in six years for the Astros, they've gone undefeated throughout the playoffs, and they have a perfect mix of veterans and young players coming into their own. It feels like the Astros' time in which maybe they can distance themselves from this from the cheating scandal. But there's they're close to per they even though they have a perfect record, they're as close to perfect. Uh they're not a perfect team. They're they are as close to perfect as a team you'll find in the MLB playoffs in recent memory. But one thing you can point to is the lack of a platoon dominant lefty, so a left-handed pitcher to match against Kyle Schwarber or Bryce Harper in a high leverage spot. They have a lot of right-handed relievers to excel in those situations, but it might not be a weak spot. They are interestingly enough to combat this. They did roster veteran lefty Will Smith, who might be used in a specialized role. Three reasons why the Phillies can win the lineup. The, the lineup is peaking right now. Their slugging percentage and OPS are way up over the regular season. Um, and they've been beating playoff pitching. Simply put, don't look at the regular season. The Phillies can outslug the Astros at the plate in the playoffs. They've shown it. Number two, I think their ballpark is good, and I think they have a great home field advantage. They're five and zero at home this postseason, and they don't think that's a coincidence. It's not about hostile crowds. Uh, it's about what the fans do for the home players. You know, Reese Hoskins called it a difference maker the last series. The Philly fans are some of the best in sports, and I think that gives them a little bit of an advantage. And, you know, I said that moxie and experience comes into place for the Astros, but the mojo comes into experience for the Phillies. They've been tested in a way the Astros have not this season. If the Astros take any part of the Phillies game lightly, they'll find out what the other three teams have learned this postseason. The Phillies aren't afraid of anyone. They might be a number six seed on paper, but it's far from it. But they look far from it on the way they're playing on the field right now. Reason why I think the Phillies might be a little vulnerable here is because they can't match the Astros pitching depth, like I said. There isn't a great option for the Phillies in terms of a game four starter, whereas the Astros have nothing but good options. Um, second, I don't think there's a very good, very, you know, dominant, lights out, high leverage bullpen 
guy to use against Jordan Alvarez should he come up in a late game close situation with runners on base. So that's some of my intel on this series. With that being said, I think I'm going to pick, you know what? I think I'm going to pick the Phillies. The Phillies in seven. I just think the Phillies are going to win this series in seven games. And I think probably Bryce Harper will be the World Series MVP. I'll say Bryce Harper or Zach Wheeler. Um, reason I picked the Phillies, you know, it's... I'm a believer in Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola. You know, traditionally in the playoffs, in a World Series, we saw, we've seen it time and time again. If a team has two dominant starting pitchers like the Phillies do with Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola, they have a good chance to win the series. I also think Kyle Schwarber is going to have a good series. He hit three homers in the NLCS. And I hate to th- say this, but, you know, I, I think Dusty Baker is an all-time great manager. I think he's going to should be headed to Cooperstown. But I think he might mess up a key decision at some point, like leaving a starter in too long or something like that. But the biggest reason why I'm picking the Phillies is because I believe in Harper. The World Series record for home runs is five. Shared by George Springer, Chase Utley, and Re- Reggie Jackson. And someone on ESPN I heard say this. I wouldn't be surprised if Bryce Harper breaks that record and hits six home runs or more in this World Series. I just think it's the Phillies' time right now. Um, they have left-handed bats, like I said, to counteract the power right-handers in the Astros' bullpen. Houston's only lefty reliever, Will Smith, hasn't pitched in the first two playoff rounds. Philadelphia hit 421, 476, and 632 is their slash line in five games this year against Will Smith, who spent the first four months of the season with Atlanta. I like the Phillies in seven. I think it's going to go the distance, but I think the Phillies are going to come out on top and beat the Astros in this World Series. And I think it's going to be a classic World Series that we continue to talk about for years to come. I think it's going to be a very, very good one. Maybe the type, probably not as good as 2016 when the Indians played the Cubs, but similar to that World Series, I would say. All right, let's get some uh, some NBA takes off here. So uh, the NBA season is about, what, five games in for most teams, four for some, something like that. Here's some takeaways from the uh, the early Early NBA season. The first, the Lakers aren't making the playoffs. They are bad. They're 0-4. They have the worst. I saw this stat the other day. They are the worst three-point shooting team through the first three games of a season in NBA history. They have the a real their offense has done nothing. Uh they are an NBA worst 21.2% on three-pointers. They're an average defensive team. And every night. Um, they provide a critical update in the value of Russell Westbrook. And there's still more than six months to go. The Lakers are exhausting uh, LeBron James in his 20th season. If LeBron wasn't on the clock, there wouldn't be as much urgency for this team. But the fact of the matter is, the whole purpose of having LeBron on your team in his sunset is to compete for a title while you can. The Lakers aren't built to take advantage of this. And that's why they're bad. Anthony Davis has been good this year. LeBron's been good this year. The Lakers are 0-4. 
No team in NBA history has won the title after starting 0-4. Only two teams in NBA history have made the playoffs after starting 0-4. So I think it's going to be another, another bad year in La La Land for the Lakers. Another team that struggled are the Philadelphia 76ers. We just talked about the Philadelphia Phillies. Maybe Philadelphia is too busy swooning over the World Series-bound Phillies and the undefeated Eagles to notice much right now, but the Sixers are 1-4, and four, and they've hit a snag out of the gate. A bit of a mystery why, because Joel Embiid is coming off yet another MVP runner-up season. James Harden whipped himself into shape and looks like the James Harden of old. Tyrese Maxey is averaging 20-plus points to put him in contention for most improved player, and P.J. Tucker has provided some toughness off the bench. They're lagging both offensively and defensively. Um, common sense says the Sixers won't stay down for too long, but we'll see. They're 1-4. Time for them to turn around. Another big takeaway early in the NBA season. What is up with the Brooklyn Nets? They are bad, too. I think they're 1-4 as well, but... Just some of the stats I've seen about this Nets team blow my mind. I do play fantasy basketball, and I have Kyrie Irving on my fantasy basketball team. He got me 73 points last night. I'm like, all right, cool. His last four games, Kyrie Irving, 39 points, 7 rebounds, 4 blocks, 27 points, 9 rebounds, 1 steal, 37 points, 8 rebounds, 2 blocks, 30 points, 7 assists, 1 block. He leads all guards in blocks per game. But despite that, Kevin Durant's averaging 33 points a game. Kyrie is averaging 30 points per game. The Nets are 1-4. Monday, of this, I love these stats. Monday of last week, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving combined for 74. Nets lost. Yesterday, KD, Kyrie combined for 60. Nets lost. Excuse me, yesterday would have been Wednesday. Thursday, KD and Kyrie combined for 76 points. The Nets lose. So it shows that, you know, obviously there was all that offseason drama in Brooklyn, but it shows that the Nets just banking on those two players being great is not the only thing they're going to need to be a good team. They do need some coaching. They need they do need some depth. Two things they're lacking right now. My fourth early season overreaction slash um slash reaction is that Luka Doncic is going to win the MVP. Uh, I really, really, really like Luka. I think he is one of the best players, probably one of the top five players in the NBA. But I feel like he's on the cusp of winning an MVP. He's averaging 15.3 points per game in the fourth quarter, first quarter this year, which is most in the NBA. Um... And he's having a really, really good year. He's averaging more points in the first half of games than Jokic, Carl Anthony Towns, DeJounte Murray, Zach Levine, Julius Randle, Anthony Edwards, and Tyler Hero are averaging in full games this season. He's having a great season thus far. And I think he's on his way to an MVP season if the Mavericks can have any sort of success this year. And I'm talking about just making the playoffs. But he's off to another incredible start. Um, 32 points, 10 assists, 7... Here is his stats in four games this season. 
32 points, 10 assists, 7 rebounds. 35 points, 6 assists, 9 rebounds. 37 points, 11 assists, 7 rebounds. 41 points, 14 assists, 11 rebounds. Leads the league in scoring average right now and is averaging 9 or more assists and 9 or more rebounds per game. That dude is something else. He is different, and I think he's going to win the MVP. But another guy you can make a case for an MVP is Giannis. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks this season are undefeated. They're the only undefeated team in the NBA. They're first in defensive rating, third in net rating. Giannis is having an outstanding season. He has averaging 36 points per game on 60% shooting this season. Oh, and by the way, the Bucks still don't have Chris Middleton back yet. And we got to talk about the early season Cavs. Donovan Mitchell, in my opinion, had, had the most impressive start with his new team. He's instantly taking the reins here in Cleveland. Uh, his heroics in overtime against the Wizards and a trio of 30-point outputs in his first three games. Uh, heavy usage in those games because of a nasty eye poke suffered by all-star backcourt mate Darius Garland. But Mitchell has been that dude. The bottom line is Cleveland is a better team with, with, with Mitchell who doesn't shrink in the lights, and who's looking to elevate the young Cavs to be a top three team in the East. And that's my takeaway from early in the season. The Cleveland Cavaliers will be a top three team in the Eastern Conference, in my opinion. All right, let's get to our college football preview of this weekend. We will also talk about my college football playoff top six as of right now. Number one in my college football playoff top six remains unchanged. We're going to let my Google Doc reload here, of course, because why wouldn't it let me scroll down? There we go. It remains unchanged. I think it's the Ohio State Buckeyes. Um, what they've done this year offensively is insane to me. They're 7-0. Their biggest test of the year thus far before week 12 against Michigan is happening uh, tomorrow. It's... At Penn State, it's a noon kickoff. It's the whiteout game for Penn. Not, no, it's not the whiteout game for Penn State. They had their whiteout game last week. But still, Penn State, Happy Valley, tough place to pay, play. Penn State is, I believe they're 6-1. and one. They're number 13 in the country. Ohio State, biggest test for them this season. But I would have to rank them at number one right now. Just C.J. Stroud is having an unbelievable year. The defense looks better than it did last year. You got Marvin Harrison being the guy in the receiver room instead of Jackson Smith and Jigba. And it's been a really, really encouraging start to the season for the Buckeyes. Number two, I would have Georgia. Um, they've done nothing. They're, they're the uh, undefeated uh, reigning national champions. They've done nothing to slide out of the top four. I would have them number two right now. They do play Florida this week, obviously in Jacksonville. That's always an interesting game. I think Georgia should win that one. But... I would have Georgia number two. Three, I would have Tennessee. Big test this week against Kentucky, who's number 19 at 5-2. and two. So that's going to be a good game as well. But Hendon Hooker is another guy with C.J. Stroud who should be mentioned in the Heisman Trophy consideration conversation. And, um, I really, and Tennessee has probably the best win of the season against Bama. Four, I would have Michigan. They they beat they have a nice win over Penn State at home. They beat everybody who's been in front of them. And they're they're undefeated as well and coming off another 
It looks like they're having another great year. The defense looks good. The run game looks good. Here's where it gets different from the AP Top 25. Five, I would still put Clemson, 8-0. Big test this weekend. Not a lot of people think it's a big test, but it is. At Notre Dame. They could lose that game. They very well could lose that game. But Clemson's 8-0. They survive, get a nice win against undefeated Syracuse at home. And... I would put Clemson at five. And then six, I would put TCU over Alabama. Undefeated TCU over a 7-1 and one Alabama. I think TCU has a little bit better wins than Alabama does this year. And I think you got to give the benefit of the doubt to the undefeated team right now this early in the season. Maybe later in the season when the full resume is looked at in the playoff committee, you could start taking into account the one-loss teams. But right now, I would say an undefeated TCU outweighs a 7-1 and one Alabama. Let's get to our game picks this week for college football as we've forgotten to do them the last couple weeks. That's on me. <laughs> Busy episode with MLB playoffs and uh, you know NFL stuff happening. But we'll do them this week for you guys and then we will go our separate ways. So first game on the docket in the, play, in the college football pick them is excuse, and I got to correct myself on something. Clemson Notre Dame is not until November 5th. So Clemson's on a bye this week. That's on me. Read the read the graphic wrong. It said next up. I thought that meant this week. So first game on the pick'em: Ohio State at Penn State. I don't think the Buckeyes are going to lose this game. I don't. I think Ryan Day is going to have him focus. And I think, although I think Penn State's offense is good, and I think Sean Clifford's done an excellent job with their offense. I don't think they'll be able to keep up with C.J. Stroud and company. I'll take Syracuse at home over Notre Dame. I will take Oklahoma State on the road at number 22, Kansas State. Could be a very good game. I'll take number 17, Illinois, on the road at Nebraska. I'll take number 20, Cincinnati, at home. On the road, excuse me, against UCF. Give me South Carolina at home versus Missouri. Tennessee at home versus Kentucky. Ole Miss on the road against Texas A&M. And UCLA at home versus Stanford. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Joe Sports Pod. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Jack Bernie TV or at the Real J Burns. That's at the Real J B E R N Z. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Like I said, I'm a Jack Bernie. Hope you guys have a happy Halloween, and we will be back next week with another award-winning episode. Until then, I've been Jack Bernie, signing off.